You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey exploring the Rose City's most famous architectural and cultural landmarks, its forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populated them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've been exploring Portland's built environment for the past 20 years as a journalist and critic covering the city's architecture, arts, politics, and more. excited to share what I've learned and to learn along with you as we talk to a spectrum of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Today we're going to talk about the city's most famous work of architecture as well as maybe its most infamous, the Portland Building. If you're anywhere near the South Park blocks downtown, you can't miss this. The Portland building looks like a big wrapped birthday present, right down to the fake ribbons on its sides. Designed by Michael Graves and completed in 1982, the Portland building is the first major completed work of architecture in the United States in what's known as the postmodern style, which briefly flourished in the late 1970s and 80s. By this time, modernist architecture had begun to wear out its welcome. What had begun as elegantly simple works of glass and steel had, with rising energy prices, become an architecture of concrete and few windows. No thanks. The postmodernists, including Michael Graves, Robert Venturi, and Philip Johnson, a a modernist convert, created a big splash with buildings that were full of color and historical references. They also, I think, took a page from Andy Warhol and pop art, treating architectural style as a kind of ironic novelty. I think there's a connection between the Portland building and Warhol's famous Brillo boxes. But therein lies the problem. The postmodernists were right that you could borrow from history, but they did so in a way that was too exaggerated. The architecture became cartoonish. Even so, when the Portland building opened in 1982, it was a red-letter date for the city. Mayor Frank Ivancey declared it the city's own Eiffel Tower, and that's without even mentioning the gigantic Portlandia statue, second largest in the United States after the Statue of Liberty which marks the entrance to the Portland building. When it arrived by barge on the Willamette River, like a massive gulliver among the Lilliputans, seemingly half the city turned out to watch. But when city employees moved into the building, it quickly became unpopular for its lack of natural light, which is to say nothing of how the building has leaked. So right now, construction is nearly complete on a quite controversial restoration, controversial in part because of its $195 million price tag, Some say it should have been torn down instead, or maybe made into a hotel or something. But it's also controversial because this historic facade of the Portland building is being completely recovered in new material, metal instead of painted concrete and tile. It flies in the face of what Historic Preservation 101 usually tells us to do. But in this particular case, making a big change just might be the correct move. It might even be truer to the spirit of the building. Today we're going to talk about the Portland building with Carla Weinheimer, an architect with DLR Group, the firm designing and overseeing the restoration. But we're also going to delve into an earlier history of the Portland building, or I should say the Portland building site, because decades before a famous building was even built here, in the 1940s and 50s there was a jazz club on this site called McElroy's Spanish Ballroom, where icons such as Duke Ellington and John Coltrane once played. Ellington even recorded a live album, if you can believe it, in the 50s that you can still buy. McElroy's was also a rare integrated jazz club where black and white could dance on the same dance floor unsegregated. We're going to discuss that musical and social history with Bob Dietschy, the author of Jump Town, which is the definitive history of our city's surprisingly robust 20th century jazz scene. I'll be honest, I haven't always loved the Portland building. I'm actually kind of a lover of modern architecture. I love Memorial Coliseum the most. But the Portland building has grown on me over time. And as for a jazz club where Coltrane once played, talk about a love supreme. Carla Weinheimer is an architect and senior associate at the Portland branch of DLR Group. It's an architecture firm with offices in 30 cities across the United States. And Carla herself has more than a quarter century of experience and is recognized nationally for her expertise in managing large-scale public sector projects, including courts, police stations, and city halls. Carla is currently leading the renovation of the world-renowned Portland building that we're here today to talk about. 
She's originally from Traverse City, Michigan, and she has master's degrees from two of the nation's most prestigious architecture schools, the University of Virginia and the University of Cincinnati. She came to DLR Group in 2014 after stints at a few other local architecture firms, in addition to being the community development manager for the city of Bellevue. Carla, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Brian. All right. So tell me about originally going for the Portland building job, if you don't mind. So what did you see as kind of the opportunity and challenges there? Because obviously it's this internationally famous landmark, which historic preservation laws ask us to be very careful with. But on the other hand, it's this building that's leaking terribly and almost kind of falling apart. And it's about the lowest levels of natural light that I've ever encountered in a building that is in a basement. So if you were a doctor, what would you have said was this building's diagnosis? Well, that's that's a number of questions there, Brian. Let, let me start with the first one. <laughs> uh, I think it's it is uh, interesting. Why did we go after that project? When uh-huh. when the project first appeared as a project, it came up fairly quickly uh, locally, and there was some concern, I think, about the complexity and about well, you know, does the city really have the ability to get themselves through it? The project, as you know, had, you know, for years and years suffered from a lot of deficiencies and leaking and lots of attempts to fix it. And so there was a lot of what I would call kind of negative reporting about what had happened and was happening with that building over time in terms of its performance as a building. But in order to understand why I thought that was going to be a cool project. Can I step back in time a little bit here? Yeah, go for it. And talk about my background and how, where I was in school when that building was built. Yeah, yeah. You know, because. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's worth maybe pausing to talk about postmodernism itself or, or the status that that building had, and that would have had an impact on you as you were becoming an architect. Exactly. And I definitely noticed the level of interest was very much relative to the age of the people that were being without in our firm that were talking about it. So yeah. those of us that were in graduate school in 1982, mm-hmm. wow, this building was an incredible thing to show up on the scene. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. Because we'd been going through years and years of very, I'm going to say, formal and somewhat engineering-like approach to design. Yeah certainly recognize that modernism had a lot more going on than that. But when it came to institutional buildings, really it became very much the form follows function thing. Yeah. You yeah. know, we were we were being very orderly and and very careful about grids and and so um you know, and if I could step back just even before architecture graduate school, there I was an undergraduate. I was doing math and English uh-huh. and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life because I had already learned that I liked lots of things, not just one little discipline. Yeah. And, you know, starting to think about architecture. And there I was in the library and there was a book on display and it said, Forms Follows Fiasco. <laughs> And I thought, what is that about? That sounds so interesting. Yeah, and I picked it up because I was supposed to be doing a paper or something, and anything is more fun than that. And here's a manifesto by Peter Blake, one of the early ones about the failures of modern architecture and that concept that the very sort of following all the regular engineering-type rules about how to make form follow function actually led to a an expression of architecture that lost a lot of the human interaction meaning. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's a more sophisticated way of saying that. But what happened, and when postmodernism showed up, when I was finally in, in architecture school and um, Michael Graves was able to achieve at this scale something so radical, mm-hmm. which now is hard to understand how radical it was, mm-hmm. that somehow he was able to introduce, reintroduce, and this is really what it was all about at the time, reintroduce the full range of the language of architecture. Yeah. You know, that it's okay that a window is not just functionally an opening in a wall. It's a thing that has meaning beyond that, that has a, that has a sill, that has a head, uh-huh. that it's doing so, there's so many more pieces and parts to what the traditional historic architecture did in terms of language. Yeah. Of yeah. form. So that's a lot of sort of background to say here I was in architecture 
1982, this building showed up, we were so excited about mm-hmm. it because it was opening up a whole new range of thinking about how to do mm-hmm. design work. That makes a lot of sense to me because sometimes we live through radical changes in in art or in a a movement or in design while we're still studying that discipline. And it it changes our thinking while we're learning what our thinking is. And and it is interesting to look back at postmodernism as this kind of almost revolutionary moment to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, there's a lot of modern buildings we love um, there's there's been a couple generations of modern buildings, and they've evolved in amazing and beautiful ways. But modernism isn't just aesthetic or an architectural style. It's a it's a rejection of the idea of old styles influencing you at all. And so postmodernism comes along and says, "Hey, why is it so bad to be influenced by the past? You know, we'll still make it our own. We'll still create our own spin. But you know, you're not asking rock musicians to never listen to Chuck Berry. You know, why?" Why would you just limit your creativity and limit your opportunities? And and of course, you know, postmodernism eventually, it had its own set of problems. You know, it, it it seemed to be maybe more of a caricature than a celebration of some of these historic forms. But it sure made sense for it to come along. Right, and I think it's important to remember, even in the name, it's really a reaction against something. Yeah, it isn't called new historicism, although that's a movement that happened fairly soon after that. But it is called postmodernism. Yeah. It's it's a reaction against, you know, and and I think Michael Graves talked about we should have some fun when we're designing. Yeah, it, you know, it doesn't need to be so serious. So that's all to say that when that building happened for all of us, it was an extraordinarily exciting time. Mm-hmm. Cycle mm-hmm. forward to the '90s when I moved out to this region. I remembered this building was here. I came to see it. Boy, I got to say, if I had ever even thought in my wildest dreams that I would get to work on it someday, that's just an aside. But I came to see it and I thought, wow, that is still a cool looking building. But what happened at the base? Yeah. You know, there there seems to be some urban design things about it. I didn't notice some of the other deficiencies, but I yeah. definitely noticed that. So now cycle forward to mm-hmm. this project is coming up as a project in the city. And so, you know, back to your question, why were we interested in it? Yeah. Why was I interested in it? Why was my firm interested in it? Because we enjoy complex building problems, Mm -hmm. number one. And that's what this was. To me, that sounds like, wow, that's pretty exciting. That's interesting. How do you actually get a building that has basic building science construction issues to actually maintain its historic preservation how do you do that? Let more light in the building because yeah. of the of the very uh, limited light that was let in by the black glass and the openings. How do you transform this building from an urban design experience standpoint? Yeah. How do you do all that for real? Yeah. And is it even possible? Now, that takes a certain type of person and firm commitment to yeah. and belief. But there's more to this story, too, because this has an element that really, really intrigued me. The city decided to use progressive design build on this project. Mm-hmm. And that means, without getting into all the ins and outs of contracts and so on, that means that they wanted to do an incredibly collaborative process to figure out how to best value solve all of these deficiencies in the building. Yeah, That means we had to come in with a contractor, with the owner at the table, and with ourselves, and in order to win the job, we first had to find a contractor that was willing to do this project. Yeah, and so it and partner with us because it's not a traditional architect. You design it, contractor bid it, and mm-hmm. then we'll do it. Okay, so I love collaborative projects. Yeah, that's what makes this fun. That's what makes my job fun. Yeah, for the city to have the vision to actually make this project a highly collaborative delivery was something that allowed us to address, and we'll get into the diagnoses, in a way that was really rich and valuable, both for the city and for the team. Mm -hmm. So again, why did we go after this project? Why? Because we found a terrific partner in Howard S. Wright, Mm -hmm. a partner with, with whom we shared the vision that if we went into this project, with the attitude that all we're going to do is fix all these problems. Yeah. It's kind of hard to get excited. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because the city was such a sort of cheapskate w- when it came to the original budget of this building, and yet uh, 
it does seem like the city in this case, even though they wanted to be efficient, they also wanted to stare the building down head on in terms of its deficiencies and say, how how can we not just patch up the leaks for five years, but how can we make this building a kind of 100-year building? Well, and remember, Brian, one of the things they studied was maybe it's better if we just take it down. Do yeah. you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so here's this opportunity because the city finally realized that doing the project correctly, and you're right to bring up all those other things that came up, it mm-hmm. wasn't just the leaking. It was also the seismic. It was also the systems needed to be replaced and, and you know, and the windows and all those things you mentioned. The city finally realized that it was still a better move, both from a cost standpoint and from a respecting of history standpoint relative mm-hmm. to the importance of this building to do a significant restoration project. In fact, they called it a reconstruction project. So $195 million assigned as project cost on this because they realized as they started pulling on the threads Mm -hmm. that, well, if you're going to do a fix on the exterior, you have to fix the seismic. If you're going to fix the seismic, well, you better start looking at replacing the systems that need replacing anyway. And by the time you do all that, you're really in a position to have to kind of redo the whole thinking about the inside of the building. Yeah. So what an amazing opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the brilliance really of the city's delivery model is they didn't try to solve it all before they hired people. Mm-hmm. They put that budget together thoughtfully. They put this delivery model together thoughtfully. They brought the what I consider to be the right team onto the project. <laughs> of course. And um, and basically, you know, we all got in a room and thoughtfully and carefully picked off in order of city priorities those elements that needed to be addressed and what was the smartest way to do that. And by doing it in that way, we were able to achieve, and I love to use the phrase, best value. What was the best way to use that money to really transform this building. And again, going back to what did Howard S. Wright and DLR Group go in with? We went in with fixing it isn't enough. Transformation is what this build, this project is mm-hmm. about. We're going mm-hmm. to transform the experience for the employees. We're going to transform the experience for the public. And we're going to transform the exterior so it doesn't leak. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. and and all of these ands make it especially fun and complex. And so that it can really respect the work that was done by Michael Graves. Right. And really, in a sense, respects the vision that Michael Graves had for this building and, and looks honestly at the fact that there were compromises made originally and, and that, you know, the facade that he wound up f- with, for example, that turned out to be leaky was not even really the facade material he would have preferred anyway. And so, you know, right. the building that we've had has not ever really been the fulfillment of that vision all these years. Well, and that that goes back to 1982 when the building was constructed. The construction budget was, you know, very much below what it should have been for the amount of square footage yeah. and the fact that it was a high rise and for the aspiration architecturally. And, and truly, um, I think it's in some ways quite miraculous that it achieved so much success in terms of capturing Michael Graves' vision mm-hmm. in the context of what was an incredibly limited budget. Yeah. It, it you know, choices were made that kind of set the city up for some maintenance issues fairly soon after it opened. Yeah. 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 There are a lot of good reasons that your firm is taking the approach you are with this new facade. It's a it's a metal overclad, and yet it speaks to how unique this situation is because normally you might have a conversation with someone that goes, you know, we, we got the job uh, to do the renovation on this internationally famous building that was practically the first of its kind in a whole genre of architecture. And, oh, by the way, we're going we're gonna to put on an entirely different facade, an entirely different... Uh, material and the building is going to be unmistakably different looking from the outside. And the person listening to that would probably go, whoa, 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 whoa. No, don't do that. Um, And so there's a solution here that makes sense that wouldn't make sense for a lot of famous international buildings. Do you you see that uh, to be the case? 
Yeah, yes, Brian, you're getting right to the heart of some of the controversy mm-hmm. with certainly with the preservation aspects of the project mm-hmm. because in traditional preservation the idea that the building as a material the the concrete, the the tile, all those elements that are there that that's what you're preserving. You're mm-hmm. preserving the history of the materials and the way they were put together. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, and in many cases, that is absolutely the right thing to do. In this case, let's remember this this um, shared visioning that we all did together, mm-hmm. which included goal setting. Yeah. So when you look at the goals that the city had and that the team needed to respond to, and you put together an analysis of that exterior and you bring on one of the world's best enclosure consultants, mm-hmm. um, Facade Forensics, is, is uh, Michael Lewis from Cincinnati, if, mm-hmm. I, if I might say. You know, you bring that person in the room and you show him the goals and you really look at what, what it would take to retain the materiality of that building uh-huh. and fix it. Then you discover that, in fact, we don't meet the goals very well if we take that approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it probably would have stopped the leak for five years or something, right? There, There is a way to do it. It requires a fairly robust maintenance program. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that was part of the city's goals. So when you put those pieces together and then you start adding other things that are really very much today, what is the right thing to do from a sustainability standpoint, from an energy consumption standpoint? All of the different things that we care about. And the city wants this building to last another, you know, 100 years? Yeah. Why not? I mean, that's people are talking about resilience now for a reason. It's a kind of pragmatism in a way because uh, on one hand, the city could have torn this building down and they said, no, we recognize that this is an internationally renowned piece of architecture, that it's a, it's a Portland landmark and it's an Oregon landmark. So we're going to step up to the plate and we're going to restore this building because we know we have a responsibility, not just to our citizens, but in a sense to the world to, to take care of this building. But at the same time, we're not going to be precious about it and we're not going to tiptoe around the fact that we need to make some changes. Well, and in fact, and I and I said it was possible, but there were some aspects of it that were going to create what I would consider to be unfortunate changes to the design intent. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I don't think there was anybody who didn't agree that one of the key elements on the facade was ceramic tile, mortar set on the concrete building. Mm-hmm. So the building has a concrete exterior. That's a little unusual. Mm-hmm. So the mortar set tile, there's nobody that believes that's a good idea, especially in an earthquake-prone area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in any case, we were going to have to bring that tile out from the face of the existing building. Mm-hmm. So even if we had saved that concrete, and then we would have had to do that with the tile, we, have, we would have started to introduce what I would call visual discontinuities between the original concept. And keep in mind... In the um, sort of spirit of postmodernism or the ideals of postmodernism, building science and materiality were less critical than just having some fun with building yeah. form and, color. and elements and color. Please, please, color. Yeah. You know, with all the white buildings. And so, so here is a design that was um, really developed with colored pencils mm-hmm. on, you know, how Michael Graves did with, with you know, really composing this wonderful composition of color and shape, yeah. referencing historic forms playfully, which is what was really at the mm-hmm. core. Let's have some fun. Everybody's just too serious. Yeah, That's what's the spirit and core of the design and the intent of the design. And as he went through the process and all of the value engineering, cost cutting, whatever it takes to get that color and form to happen, okay. Yeah. There's a gentleman you worked with uh, named Patrick Burke, I believe, yes. who uh, is still in Michael Graves' office, even though Michael Graves himself passed away a couple of years ago. But Patrick Burke was working on the original Portland building job, and I remember him telling me that Michael Graves had said to him, I don't care if you make it out of oatmeal, referring to the facade. Um, you know, In other words, just kind of get my building done with the color I'm looking for. Um, mm-hmm. I realized that this is a really cheap 
building, you know, just make it happen. I think you and I both feel that Michael Graves was was really okay with this, even though he didn't live to see um, the decisions made to restore it the way it is. He came to Portland uh, a couple of years before the decision was made while the building was still under threat. And he came and spoke here um, and really made the case for the re- restoration of the building, but also said in interviews with myself and others and in his speech at the Portland Art Museum, he himself said that he was very much encouraging of certain liberalities to be taken. You know, I, I would say liberalities maybe, but actually best preservation of design intent that's what we did. Yeah. Because yeah. any of the, the the things we would have had to do to fix the leaking in the original would not have preserved the same level of integrity that we were able to do with the overclad in terms of all the relationships of the patterns and shapes and materials. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of, we feel like we really nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of which, uh, I'd like to... Uh, talk about the building that people are going to see when it opens in a few months. And uh, you and your team were nice enough to take me on a tour a few weeks ago. And it really was incredible to to see how much more natural light is pouring into that building. And, and then to see things like the lobby, which has been really expanded in an interesting way to kind of include the mezzanine in a, in a way that's probably better than the original design. So tell me what's got you excited or, or what you're anticipating when the building opens to the public. What we haven't talked about, and I think what is going to be most exciting for folks, is to really experience the transformation on the inside of the building. Mm -hmm. In 1982, there was no money left. When the exterior was complete, the interior was done in a very uninspired way. The windows that you see on the outside don't all go to the inside. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the transformation, allowing every single ounce of light to come in, replacing the black glass with the clear glass. Absolutely right. That is going to be transformational in and of itself. But beyond that, we had the opportunity to do some things that really changed the urban experience of this building at its base. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the loggia that he had um, introduced, you know, changing the attitude about what government is doing and its relationship to the public and really embracing that we should make this a user-friendly building for the public. We we took the first two floors and said, hey, all public interaction can happen on these floors and let's make it really work. We opened up the loggia experience to a very glassy um, back face. So it wasn't just a lot of retail kind of funnily at the base. But most importantly, the city understood that their loading dock and parking on that one level below the building was really not the highest and best use of this building. And it introduced the most unpleasant experience on that beautiful park side. Yeah, yeah. You've got the parking garage essentially facing the park. Big open square there. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the most exciting things was taking, was the opportunity to reinvent that facade and actually create a two-story glass opening into the two public floors. And that was probably where we felt we were most at risk relative to being respectful to the Michael Graves design Mm -hmm. because we were really changing the pattern of openings on the back. So, um, again, that's when uh, Patrick Burke coming to visit us and kind of check in on what we were doing. It was um, so heartening for him to say, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, Michael liked to see buildings evolve over time because now the city has such a different attitude about expressing transparency of government. And this building is doing that. And that is never a design that he would have wanted to do. Mm -hmm. He was just asked to put the parking down there. So one other piece that allowed us to do that, the original building, again, for cost reasons, had all the air handling equipment on the second floor. Yeah, it's just crazy. That would normally be on the roof. Well, and the result of that is they're pulling their air from the bus mall. Not ideal. Yeah, they're pulling carbon monoxide from buses outside as their fresh air. <laughs> so, well, I wouldn't go quite that far, but yes. So, so, but the the opportunity to to move the air handling equipment up onto the roof to actually open up that second floor in a way that is now, um, you know, full of shared conferencing and 
publicly accessible space and light and light and also yes and and changing the louvers to windows yeah and, you know so that we're not changing the pattern but instead of wind louvers there are windows so it's kind of a whole new found experience. Yeah. It's very exciting. That ground floor, I want to make sure our listeners understand what you were saying about that ground floor when you talked about the loggias. It, it, it used to have the ground floor kind of set back from the sidewalk in this covered area. That's the loggia. And it was all retail lining the re, uh, ground floor of the building. And so the new design takes all that retail out. But by doing so, it allows the floor-to-ceiling glass and that light to feed into the middle of the building. It used to be you'd go into the lobby, and it was just basically a kind of hallway between the retail facilities. And now you're going into this multi-story kind of basically an atrium. Well, there's, the, there's one interior element that Michael Graves did design, and that is that entry lobby experience. Mm-hmm. But because of everything that wasn't done around it, that's all you got. You came in and you were in this one little lobby experience, which was two-story. Yeah. But you couldn't tell where you were and you couldn't tell where to go. Yeah. And By, you couldn't see through anything. You couldn't see through anywhere. So one of our one of our strategies for the building on the first floor and actually all the way up the building was really to open up views through so that when you enter the building, you don't feel like you're in the middle of I don't know what. You can see to the right all the way through out. You can see to the left all the way throughout, and you can see straight throughout to the park. Mm-hmm. So the orientation on every floor is always maintained. I think people from employees to visitors are, are really going to be kind of blown away, and, and it's really interesting because of some of the decisions that were made that it, this just is such a unique project, and it's such an identifiable landmark. So we really appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us about it. Well, I certainly enjoy talking about it. I'm sure you can tell. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. And I, I do get a, uh, I do get a ticket to the uh, to the opening uh, of the building, don't I? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials, who helps make all of this possible. They also have helped to make Portland possible in a way, since a lot of the city was built with their products. That cool brick building? It could be Mutual Materials. And that exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store? It might be slim brick tile from Mutual Materials. And those outdoor spaces with paved patios and retaining walls and fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials, too. So if you're looking for masonry or hardscape products, I recommend you check out Mutual Materials. And listen to the end of this show for a free resource you might want to check out. Robert Dietschy is the author of Jump Town, The Golden Years of Portland Jazz, 1942 to 57. He has also taught courses in jazz history at a number of Oregon colleges and universities, and he was the longtime host of Jazzville on Oregon Public Broadcasting Radio. He is the founder and former owner of Django Records, Portland's legendary used record store. His writings about jazz have also appeared in numerous publications, including Jazz Journal, The Oregonian, Willamette Week, Pittsburgh Press, and The Toledo Blade. I spoke with Bob by phone recently, and we dove right into a question about McElroy's Ballroom and its two founders, Pop McElroy and Stanton Duke. Which I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, these gentlemen, Pop McElroy and uh, Mr. Stanton. Uh, I, I read in your book that they were really some of the premier jazz promoters in the city. Absolutely, but more than that, they were humanists. They, uh, I think I said someplace where Pop McElroy was... Uh, not as interested in making money as he was in uh, <clears throat> integration, which is the main reason he uh, he did what he did on Monday night with the help of Stanton Duke, who was a promoter. The interesting thing about Stanton Duke, or one of them, is he was a big promoter of women's jazz at a time when no one was doing this. Mm-hmm. And so there were a number of women's jazz uh, groups that came to Portland because of him. Oh, interesting. And also he was... Uh, uh, an indefatigable uh, promoter. He and his son, I interviewed his son, uh, they would uh, poster just uh, you know, whole streets and just hang posters on telephone poles or windows and everything promoting this because the media, well, especially the white media, you know, they weren't interested in this. So most of the uh, promotion came from Bill McClendon's paper, uh, the, the Observer. Mm-hmm. 
And so uh, the promotion came through there. But but Stanton Duke did it, you know, on foot, a lot of it, promoting the bands that would come in. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you specifically about Duke Ellington. And if I'm not mistaken, he came to McElroy's a a few times over the years. Uh, uh, Did I read correctly that he came to McElroy's and played just after Pearl Harbor, for instance? It was important for him to spend birthdays at McElroy's. And there's a picture in my book of a birthday cake with Duke sitting around it and some of his fans. But he took it, it was, uh, it probably was his, if not his favorite city, his second favorite city. Um, uh, the band he bought, brought in 53 and 54 was not one of his best, but if you can hear, you know, there were four CDs that came out of this that are still available. I yeah, think. I've got at least one of them at home. Uh, I, I want to say it's called the Birthday Concerts, but I think I'm wrong. But but anyway, it, it's it's kind of amazing. No, I'm they doing... are the Birthday Concerts. Oh, okay. The ones that you have, the same ones that I have. No, those are the Birthday Concerts. And you can hear even uh, even some uh, uh, patter that was, was, was not deleted. Where, uh, I think Duke Ellington says that somebody's car's lights are on and <laughs> they left everything in there. Um, but, yeah, and, and, and one of the most uh, disturbing things, and I must say I lost my temper on this, is when Reed College, my alma mater, had a Duke Ellington Festival, invited everyone in the world. I can't believe this. I mean, I, this guy, was whoever arranged this, it's a piano player and instructor out there uh, I gave him uh, probably the worst verbal lashing he's ever uh, <clears throat> had to withstand I was so mad he did not mention he didn't invite anybody from Port- no two people from Portland one was a singer Rebecca Kilgore but he didn't invite anybody else or even mention never read my book never mentioned the fact that uh, this was one of his favorite hometowns and lots of he never bothered. He didn't care at all huh. about what happened in Portland. He invites all these luminaries from around the world. I mean, it was it was global. I don't know how he got the money to do this. So I just blew my stack, and I couldn't believe that he didn't read it. I said the most knowledgeable people, person on the subject of Duke Ellington, and maybe the world is living right here, and his name is Dave Frischberg. Mm-hmm. My God, he played with him. He's written about him. He knew him personally. Didn't never mentioned it. So uh, I, I didn't. I uh, I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think Duke Ellington liked about Portland? Was it the people he he knew here, or was it something oh, else? Oh, I think he liked uh, McClendon's rhythm room. The fact that. Mc- the, the the he loved the Benson Hotel and that's where <laughs> he stayed. And he wrote one of his uh, famous compositions. He wrote it as they were coming through the valley, mm-hmm. Warm Valley, it's called. Wow! And it was a it was a composition from Johnny Rog, uh, Johnny Hodges, the alto player, really wrote it. And uh, Duke Ellington, I mean, played it. Johnny Hodge played it, but Duke Ellington wrote it, and he wrote it in the room. One of the rooms in the Benson Hotel. Oh goodness! And it's it's one of his most uh, requested selections. Johnny Hodges was was as they were coming through the as the train was coming through the gorge, he noticed the mountains or the hills, and thought of them as a woman's body, <laughs> uh, uh, the outline, and so this became Warm uh, Warm Valley. Oh goodness! Well, I love the idea that that Duke Ellington then didn't simply play here but actually created here that that's something special in its own right i mean he had a huge fan club here and uh and he'd also as you pointed out earlier a history of being here probably uh 10 times before the birthday concerts that we talk about so it, it was uh i don't think he ever missed a year where he didn't play in portland wow. or around here wow well, uh, I got to ask you also about John Coltrane, and I know that it would have been pretty early or earlier in Coltrane's career than than the great albums that that we know him for, like Giant Steps or Love Supreme. Right. But nineteen fifty four. See what happened was uh, uh, Johnny Hodges dropped out of Duke Ellington, formed a little group on his own, mm-hmm. and uh, hired Coltrane. Coltrane doesn't get any solos. 
I mean, that picture of him in the book is, yeah. is not uh, representative of his role. He he barely. There are recordings out, but I don't think you'll find a tenor solo on it uh, of the of the Johnny Hodges group at this time. Oh wow! So uh, I mean, Coltrane was here. Actually, he got more. He got more acclaim and, uh, and a lot more space with Earl Bostic, the uh, rhythm and blues alto player. And here's a story. Uh, in 1956, Nick Ciroli, not to throw names around, one of the greatest drummers, and we grew up together in Niles, Ohio. So Earl Bostic came to Idora Park, amusement park with a dance floor. So we went out there and uh, heard Earl Bostic. Coltrane must have been there. Of course, we didn't know Coltrane from Sid Caesar. <laughs> so we got stuck. Bostic gave us a ride. You know that in that car could have been John Coltrane as he gave us a ride back to Niles, Ohio. Oh, my goodness. I could have been. I'm not saying I didn't. I'm not saying it, but he was in the group, and he might have been in the other car. I don't know. One, He had two cars, and that's how he had room to take Nick and, and me back to Niles. Wow. He was on his way. He was, <clears throat> he was on his way to Pennsylvania to play in uh, Pittsburgh. And, uh, but that's a true story, and I, you know, I can't believe it. But that, and and the other thing about I know we're getting off subject here, but Earl Bostic was one of the most educated of all rhythm and blues, the most educated. I mean, he had master's degrees in theory and everything. So mm-hmm. Coltrane said, by the way, he learned more about music with Earl Bostic than anybody. Mm. So anyway. So uh, I wonder if you could maybe, uh, for those people out there who um, are yet to read your book or, or who are just getting into uh, the idea of jazz in Portland and this history, um, what are some of the other clubs that you think uh, were part of this constellation that were the absolutely kind of most essential or, or the ones that, that meant the most? You mean the clubs? The, uh, what Portland clubs besides McElroy's were the most important to you? The one out on Broadway next to the, what used to be the Esquire Theater, because that's where Leroy Vinegar first uh, appeared. I like that uh, spaghetti place uh, right next to Portland State. I can't think of all the names now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't remember them. And that was for just piano. It was kind of a piano playhouse. And it was a, an Italian restaurant. I Name escapes me right now. Mm-hmm. So that was two of them. Oh, and of course... Um, Maybe the most famous one that was out on Holgate and 39th. Uh, everybody played there in the 80s. That was probably the most perfect class. I can't think of the names of these, mm-hmm. so you'll have to do some research. Well, you know, there was uh, the Dude Ranch, of course. That's one that I know about. That was uh, near yeah, where... Yeah, but that's in... Nine... I was thinking some of the clubs later. That was in 1945, and yes. Uh, yeah, I, I guess what I meant was, what are some of the other clubs that would have been around and the most important in this kind oh, of yeah, golden age? Okay. In well, this the golden age, uh, uh, the Dude Ranch for sure, and uh, McClendon's Rhythm Room naturally. Um, Wasn't there one called the Chicken Coop? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> that was out on Sandy. That was kind of what. It, it was a club that belonged on the avenue, but was a, a satellite way out on uh, uh, Sandy, mm-hmm. way way out on Sandy. And uh, it, oh, that was pop. That may be the most popular club ever. I mean, that was the place to be after all these big bands would come to Jansen Beach uh, or uh, a Golden Canopy out at uh, uh, a, a, a Jansen Beach, but also a, where's the other place that Big bands would come, and uh, then they would after after the date they would look for some place to jam and and uh, the chicken, chicken coop, coop was, was that place number one. That's where the number one destination was. Could you talk a little bit about the area around McElroy's Ballroom? Because obviously you would have had City Hall. Uh, close by there, but it also seems like uh, um, there were aspects of uh, the city that were very different than maybe some other clubs or or residence hotels. What what, what was that stretch of blocks like when McElroy's bought? I, I I can't remember. I was only there once, mm-hmm. but it wasn't uh, a rough area as I think you uh, may have uh, uh, thought. It, it really was. It was downtown. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
Could you talk a little bit about what McElroy's inside was like? What, if I'm not mistaken, it was a second floor space, kind of. Right. Well, well, first of all, the, the, there was a guy at the door I, 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 who uh, I wrote about because it's peculiar. Uh, if you remember, a guy in a raincoat who would cheer on everybody who would go in, you know, and and, and shake oh, that's right. And, and then, and he was always dressed in a raincoat, same raincoat, same thing. And every time a group would come, he'd be outside, shaking hands of the celebrities that would go in and all the fans and everything. But he never went in once himself. He never heard any music. <laughs> so that, that was one of the curiosities. Uh, we walked up these steep stairs, and you turned left and opened up where the doors would be open, and then you entered the ballroom, which was always very dark, and there was one of those overhead crystal balls that I talked about in the book, mm-hmm. you know, the kind we see in Saturday Night, what, you know... Uh, Saturday Night Fever? Yeah. You know, one of those big ones in revolve. But the dance floor was just made for... Uh, for dancing, it was it was slick, and some of the greatest dancers, probably in the, in the north, not probably, definitely, in the Pacific uh, Northwest would come in here, and for a lot of them to compete. I wrote about one excellent dancer, who who is uh, one leg was uh, about six inches shorter than the other, and yet he was he was probably the best that McElroy's had to offer at that time. He was so hot that. Women would wait till he would arrive, you know, so they could win with him in these these contests. And when a, a couple got really hot, I may have mentioned this in there, then the others would concede and stand around in a circle and start waving their their handkerchiefs to put the you know to cool them off. <laughs> All from a guy whose who, whose uh, one leg was much longer than the other. Yeah. Like, I can't uh, wait till this winning dancer hobbles in here. <laughs> and uh, well, let's see. Uh, he used to hang around my store, you know, Django Records. He used to hang around there a lot. Uh, and God, I can think of the real character. And yeah, he he was. You know, he. I didn't. When I first met him, he never even mentioned this. I had to find it out later that uh, he was the dancing champion of the Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, um, I think that reaches the end of my questions. Uh, Bob Dietschy, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure, Brian. Yes, I, it's been, been a great conversation, and uh, um, uh, obviously I'm a fan of your book, and uh, it, it, I just don't think people understand completely how much jazz history there is in this city. Well, I guess that's why I wrote it. When people ask me, and when I did some talks after the book came out, and, uh, I don't know where it was, some books, and they said, why'd you write this? And I said, guilt. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote it because <clears throat> I knew that no one else would write it, and if I didn't do it, it would never get done. That's the way I figured it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was and- the reason. And the more distance we get, the more jazz emerges as kind of, um, in some ways, one of these signature American art forms, even though it's not as popular today as, as hip-hop or rock and roll. It's it's yeah. in some ways well, kind of the original American art form. Right. Uh, that's a whole other subject, and and uh, I get, uh, I can talk at hours about what's happening. And yeah. How it's being diluted, and that main thing is that you really don't have any station that cares about the classics. We have a jazz station, but they don't play classics. In the classical station, you hear Bach, Beethoven, and, you know, the heavies. You don't hear that. I mean, the last time they ever played Art Tatum or Teddy Wilson or Coleman Hawkins, they don't do that. They play contemporary jazz. Mm. So Mm. no real interest in the history of it. Yeah. Okay, I got my say in. Brian, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much once again. Really enjoyed talking with you. You bet. So there we have it. The story of a famous building and the jazz club that preceded it on the same site. Thanks again to architect Carla Weinheimer and writer Bob Dietschy for talking with us about the Portland building and McElroy's Spanish Ballroom, the two very special places that have existed on one block. 
Besides being a story of the people who gave birth to these places, architect Michael Graves, promoters Pop McElroy and Stanton Duke, this is, of course, a story of postmodern architecture and a story of jazz. So it got me thinking, what, if anything, do this architectural style and this music genre have in common? I realized that both postmodernism in architecture and jazz music are about new interpretations of old favorites. They are both reconceptual art forms. In the case of postmodern architecture, you have architects in the 1970s and early 80s rebelling against the dogma of modernism and its notion that you can't channel influences of the past. Before 20th century modernism, though, all of our buildings did this very thing. They revived and continually reinterpreted historic building styles. In the 70s, postmodernism came along and said, why not? Why can't architects reimagine the past in new ways, just like artists and musicians always do? They had a good point, even if the neo-historic postmodern buildings they produced, like Michael Graves' Portland Building or architects Robert Venturi or Peter Eisenman, were more caricature than homage. And in a similar way, jazz musicians were creating new interpretations of classics. They would choose songs from the Great American Songbook and turn them inside out, using the melody from a Broadway show tune or a Hollywood musical or even a Bible song or a nursery rhyme as a springboard for their own improvisations. Let's put it this way. Would you rather hear the song My Favorite Things as sung by Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, or would you rather hear My Favorite Things as performed by John Coltrane? At least for me, that is a very, very easy call. I'm going with the guy who once played at McElroy's. Portland as a city has not produced many architectural superstars or famous jazz musicians, but I'd like to think that on blocks like this one, between 4th Avenue, 5th Avenue, Main Street, and Madison Street, the city became a stage for great creative minds of two generations to show their stuff. It doesn't mean the city of Portland didn't compromise Michael Graves' design in the 80s with an insufficient budget. They sure as hell did that. It's flawed building because of the client, not because of the architect. And as it relates to jazz, McElroy's Ballroom as a desegregated place for black and white patrons to dance together in the 40s and 50s was still the exception to the rule. Portland, like anywhere else, was and is a racist place that made life unnecessarily difficult for people of color. Yet there's a reason that Michael Graves and Duke Ellington came here. This block became a place of opportunity for two visionaries, and actually several visionaries, given all the jazz musicians that played there, to fulfill their visions. More than the brick and mortar of these buildings, the glass and steel, I think that's what endures. closer to the end of the show, and here's that free resource from our sponsor, Mutual Materials. It's the Home and Yard Idea Book, just filled with more than 150 pages of project photos from homes and yards across the Pacific Northwest. You can download it from mutualmaterials.com. In Search of Portland is brought to you by Mutual Materials and X-Ray FM. Thanks to our producers, Amalia Boyles and Ed Curtis. Thanks as well to my friends in the Washington, D.C. band Beauty Pill for providing the music for In Search of Portland. Their last album, Beauty Pill Describes Things As They Are, was named one of the top 50 albums of the year by both National Public Radio and Rolling Stone magazine. Keep an eye out for their next album, entitled Please Advise. And thanks as well to Nikolai Kruger for providing original artwork for each episode that you can find on our website. You can find all episodes of this podcast at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts.